Lord Jesus, as we've just sung, we come here today um, not because we have something to offer, but because you do. We come here in need of your grace, in need of your help. I know there are some in our midst who are in need of your comfort this morning. We are in need of the truth of your word. We know that you minister to us by revealing yourself on the pages of Scripture. So, Lord Jesus, show yourself to be sufficient, to be enough, and meet our needs today. We come empty-handed with open hearts, and I pray that, God, you would show yourself mightily today in our midst. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4. Have you ever been asked to do something, but you knew that you were the wrong person for the job? Maybe that's happened to you before. I remember in in high school, I played a couple sports, but rugby was not one of them, and I was actually in a doctor's waiting room uh, to get an injured ankle checked out, and there was a rugby um, player there. He was a player coach for the Kansas City club team. He was trying to recruit me to play rugby, and I knew that I was the wrong man for that job. if you don't know anything about rugby, you either have to be big enough to run over everybody or fast enough to run away from everybody, and I was neither. Um, so I knew that that was the wrong job for me. Maybe you can think of an example like that in your life. Um, but it's a much different thing when the person who is asking you to do something is God. Because God doesn't actually ask us to do anything. He commands us. He tells us. And he often calls us to do things that we may feel ill-equipped to do, things that we fear won't work, things that may instill uncertainty, doubt, hesitancy in our own hearts. So you may ask, what is the secret to a holy confidence? What is the key to courage when the thing that you're being commanded to do by God is something that causes you to hesitate? The solution for our uncertainties and our fears, the kinds of things that paralyze us and keep us from doing God's will, is knowing the promises and the power and the presence of Almighty God. To remind you where we're at here in the story of Exodus, God has met Moses on the mountain. We saw this last time. Moses encountered the angel of the Lord, and he was in the presence, the very holy presence of the self-existent, eternal God. He was standing on holy ground. There, God had revealed his name to Moses. I am who I am. I need nothing and no one. I simply am the God who was and who is and who will be. And this God had revealed not only his name to Moses, but also revealed his purpose, that he was now going to act in faithfulness to his promise. He was going to deliver his people from Egypt and bring them out to that very mountain to worship him. And then he was going to lead them into the promised land. Oh, and by the way, the last thing that God revealed to Moses is that God was going to use Moses to do it. Moses would be their leader. And now at this point, if you're reading along, and you remember all the things we covered last week, we tried to cover all of chapter 3, at this point the conversation should have been over. Everything that needed to be known Was known. Everything that needed to be said by God had been said. But Moses, as many of you know, had some objections. And each of his objections reveal a man who is plagued by uncertainty, doubts, hesitancy, 
And in Moses' struggles here in Exodus 4, I think we really see a reflection of human nature. And we can see ourselves in Moses. We have the same kinds of fears, hesitancies, uncertainties that plague our own faith today. And in God's response to Moses here in this chapter, we find needed grace and truth, things that we need today as well. The first objection Moses gives, we we find this conversation starting in chapter 4, verse 1. It's an objection that reveals uncertainty about the outcome, uncertainty about the outcome. Then Moses answered, we're picking up halfway through this conversation with God, but behold, they will not believe me. Or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Most people, I would argue most of us in this room, the sane ones, we realize that we are not in control of this world. You don't actually have the power, I don't have the power to control outcomes, do we? There are circumstances and reactions that are simply beyond our power. Things like the weather, things like the economy, what other people think, what other people do. Those are things that we simply can't control. And for some people, that brings fear. It causes uncertainty. Based on our experiences, we might even become the kind of person who always expects things to go badly. The glass is half empty. You're a pessimist because if you prepare yourself for the worst, you'll never be surprised. Some people tend to see the world that way. And it's very realistic. It's based on the knowledge that you can't control outcomes. When Moses heard the command of God that he should go to Egypt, that he should speak to the elders of Israel, that he should speak to Pharaoh, he heard God's promise, I will be with you. The elders will listen to you. Pharaoh won't, but I'll change his mind. But Moses wasn't convinced. He was uncertain about the outcomes because he knew they were beyond his control. And Moses had his reasons to be a little skeptical. If you remember earlier on, 40 years before this, the people of Israel had rejected Moses' attempts to help them. They said, who made you a prince and a ruler over us? They wanted none of his help. Now Moses was an outsider. He was not welcomed by the Egyptians As far as he knew, there was still a price on his head, a death sentence for his crimes in Egypt. And at this point, Moses has been gone for 40 years. Why would they give him the time of day? He'd been ran out of town 40 years earlier. 
And in addition, this message that Moses was supposed to bring, this message that the God of their fathers had appeared to him on a mountain in the middle of the wilderness, that this God had spoken to him, that was an incredible claim. I don't know about you, but I am very slow to believe someone when they walk up and tell me, God spoke to me. I go, really? Tell me about that, because he hasn't been doing that for a couple thousand years, at least in the way that you're describing. At this point, God, as far as we know, had not spoken in 400 years. He had been silent while his people were in Egypt. So for Moses to show up and say, hey, I know I'm not popular. I know I've been gone. I know that I'm a nobody who has been sojourning in Midian, but God spoke to me, and here's what he said. That's a pretty big claim. And on top of that, the course of action that Moses was going to call these people to was pretty risky. He was going to encourage them to follow his lead as he spoke to Pharaoh and made demands on their freedom. How do you think Pharaoh would respond to that? What would the cost be? The cost would be high. In light of all of this, Moses felt that what God had planned simply wasn't going to work. He says, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So how does God respond? God responds by revealing to Moses exactly how this message was going to be authenticated. Yes, God had appeared and spoken to him, and God was going to give Moses three signs to show the people that he wasn't just making this up. God had appeared. The fact that the people would receive and hear his message did not depend on Moses' word alone. It depended on the power of God. God would furnish their faith. He gave signs that would embolden Moses and demonstrate to the people that this message was real. That's how signs always work in Scripture. These signs are meant to invite faith, to prove the message that is being spoken. We see this all throughout Scripture. We even see it in the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, you can take me at my word, but even if you can't do that, believe based on the things that I'm doing, these miraculous signs that can only be explained by the power of God. So three signs are given to Moses to invite faith and to convince the people that his message was authentic. The first sign is this sign of throwing down his staff. And it turns into a snake. This is so famous. You, many of you know this story. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. A staff was an essential tool. Even if you were poor and didn't have much, you had a staff. It was used, for, uh, it was used as a tool. It was used for self-defense. It was used practically for support. And, and it was often carved or decorated to be unique. It was sort of like your driver's license. If you saw a staff leaned up against the door, you knew who was inside. It, it personally identified people. And God's not asking this question because he doesn't know what a staff is. He's drawing Moses' attention to it. He says, what's that in your hand? And he says, a staff. Verse 3, he says, throw it on the ground. So he throws it on the ground. It becomes a serpent. And Moses does what many of you would do if you saw a snake crawling under your feet right now. He ran. He jumped. Gave it some space. There's poisonous snakes and non-poisonous snakes. And typically, the best way to identify them is from a safer distance, right? You jump first and then look second, at least most of us. I know there's some guys out here who'd probably grab it first and then look at it, but Moses does what you and I, most of us would do. He jumps back, and then 
this, this staff has turned into a living thing, a dangerous thing, a snake. And then he tells Moses, as you know, to pick it up. He picks it up by the tail, and it becomes a staff again. What is this sign for? Well, it's to show the people that the power of God is at work, but it's also symbolizing something about God's power. It's showing us more than, the, than just the fact that God has it. It's telling us something about the nature of that power. God has power over that which causes fear in mankind. The cobra with its raised hood, that's, that's the sign of a cobra that's threatening. That sign of the serpent was what was on the crown of the pharaoh in Egypt. And it symbolized Egyptian royal authority. It symbolized the power of Egypt and Egypt's gods. And formerly, Moses had fled from the power and the danger that was in Egypt. But now, by the power of God, he will subdue that same threat, that danger. This sign was symbolic. Yes, it shows power, but it shows God's power over that which is dangerous. Even God's power over all the royal authority and the gods of Egypt. And Moses believes it. And we see that because he picks it up by the tail. If you're like me and you've caught a lot of snakes, where do you usually grab a snake? Grab it behind the head, right? If you pick up a snake that's even more than a few inches long, by the tail, it can whip around and bite you. You usually grab it behind the head so that it can't go anywhere. Moses picks it up by the tail, which demonstrates his faith that the divine miracle would come to completion. He did what God said. We see here that this sign is not just for the onlookers. Moses has weak faith, brittle faith, and God is actually strengthening and encouraging Moses' faith through this sign as he picks it up and it turns back into the staff. Moses is starting to learn that the path to experiencing God's blessing lies in obedience. Moses, pick it up by the tail. He does. And it turns it back into the staff. That's the first sign, but he gives him a second sign. Second sign is in verses six through eight. The sign of putting his hand inside his cloak and pulling it out, and it turns leprous. There was various skin diseases that were categorized as leprosy, uh, more than just what we would think of technically being leprosy today. But in those days, they didn't have the same modern medicine we have, and these skin diseases were infectious, they were misunderstood, and they were often seen as, as, as being evidence of the God's displeasure, of some sort of divine wrath. And so the people often were fearful of these diseases, and they would seek to, in any way they could, appease the gods who were angry with them to stop the spread of this infectious disease. So this sign would have really gotten people's attention, and it really implies the threat of judgment, divine wrath that can corrupt and decay and destroy your flesh. This shows that God has the power to judge. God's power is not just for parlor tricks. He can destroy the nation. He can introduce a threat so severe that they can do nothing to stop it. But then when Moses puts it in and pulls it out again, the hand is clean. It is whole. It is pure. God is all, just as he is able to judge and destroy, he is also able to save and to restore and to renew his people. He's able to make that which is old to be new. He's able to make that which is corrupt to be Pure, that which is damaged to be whole. He can do it with Moses' hand. He can do it with Moses' life. He can do it with a nation, and he will. The third sign is to pour out water from the Nile. 
and it will turn to blood. The Nile River was the source of life for the nation Egypt. Their whole society depended upon it. There was regular flooding that would wash up all this mud and silt that was rich with nutrients that had been carried up from the jungles of Africa. And that was key to their, their, their agriculture and their society. Their economy depended on it. They worshipped the Nile. It was a source of life and a symbol of their prosperity and their power. But the blood of innocent children cried out to God from the Nile River. He had commanded the people to cast all the male children into this river, the male Hebrews. Population control, seeking to to manage the threat that Israel was becoming. And the blood of these babies cries out to God from the Nile River. And soon God would turn this whole river to blood. It'll be the first plague, as we'll see. To pollute and destroy the Nile was to destroy Egypt itself. And this sign foreshadowed this first plague, that divine justice was coming upon the Egyptians. How could the people of Israel believe that God would be able to set them free from Egypt? God says, I can destroy Egypt. I can cut the legs of Egypt out in an instant and bring them to their face before me, and I will. This sign symbolized God's power of judgment and deliverance. These signs are not just magic tricks. They're not just to entertain people at parties. They prove that God is able to transform and to renew and to conquer. And these signs would be the credentials for Moses. Yes, Moses had truly met with God on the mountain. And he had received this message from God. Moses was worried that people wouldn't listen and they wouldn't believe him. But God has provided not only what the people need to believe, but also he's provided for Moses to strengthen Moses' weak faith, to to alleviate his uncertainties about the outcome when he would go back and speak to the people. I think there's an important observation here for us that faith in God, faith is not an irrational leap. As much as people may say that it is, as much as people may ridicule you for believing in a God that cannot be seen, Faith is not an irrational leap. It's not believing something that is absurd despite all evidence to the contrary. No. Here's what faith is, biblically speaking. Faith is a response to the claims of God, a response to the words of God that is based in a demonstration of God's power and God's glory. There's a reason we believe this book is true. We see the power of God on display in creation. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's invisible attributes and his power has been seen by all in the things that are made. We also believe based on the marvelous works of God. And we could go all throughout scripture and and observe the powerful things God has done. But the pinnacle of God's miraculous work is the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The resurrection proves the power of God, that he is who he says he is. The resurrection proves that the message of God is true. And we believe these words because they've been authenticated by the power of God in the raising of his son from the dead. The answer to our uncertainties, Moses' uncertainties, the children of Israel's uncertainties, the answer to our uncertainty about outcomes What's going to happen if we obey God? The answer is to be certain about the power of God. The 
power that proves his promises will come to pass. God gives these signs to Moses to strengthen his faith and to equip him to go back to Egypt and do the thing that God is asking him to do. But Moses has a second objection, and it's an objection that's common to us all. Not just uncertainty about outcomes, but we often have a lot of uncertainties about our own abilities, don't we? Look in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I mentioned earlier that a lot of us know our limits. There's some people who don't. Um, Some people think they're Superman. Uh, Sometimes the chihuahua wants to pick a fight with the pit bull. There's people like that uh, in this world. But most of us realize our limits. And a lot of times, our uncertainties and our hesitancy to do with the things that we see committed in Scripture is rooted in a realization of our own shortcomings, our own weaknesses. We know ourselves all too well. And Moses is no different. Now, with these signs in hand, God's power has been made evident. So that question's been answered. But what about Moses' power? What about his weaknesses? He's concerned that his inabilities might get in the way, that Moses was going to mess things up. He was afraid that he might fail, that he would falter and fall short in these duties. He didn't think he could do it. Notice the words of Moses in verse 10. He says, I'm not eloquent either in the past, get this, or since you have spoken to your servant. He says, God, that's great. You know, you are this consuming fire who is the great I am, and you can do these things, but I'm still who I am, and I still have the weaknesses and limits that I have, and even being here in your presence hasn't changed me. What exactly is it that concerns Moses here? People debate this. I don't think it's a speech impediment. Um, Acts chapter 7 says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty, mighty in his words and deeds. So I I don't think it means that he literally has a hard time articulating that he's tongue-tied or has some sort of speech impediment. It possibly refers to his mastery of language. If he's going to be speaking to the children of Israel and speaking to Pharaoh, he would need to be a master of both Hebrew and Egyptian. Perhaps he felt that his vocab and his oratory skills were somehow insufficient to persuade these people. I mean, the message that he was to give, I mean, God gives it to us in abbreviated form, but Moses knows this is going to be a lot of conversations. This is going to be debate and explanation and having to persuade and convince people. I'm not sure I have the skill vocally, verbally to do that. He felt that this was simply beyond him, and the task was too big. Too big for somebody who possessed the skills that he possessed. Once again, God responds to Moses. And notice his response. He starts with a question. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who made man's mouth? Again, God knows the answer, but he wants Moses to think about it. Think about it, Moses. God had made him. Psalm 139, 14 says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very 
Moses? Who made man's mouth? The answer is God did. And the God who created all things also sustains all things. God is not a creator who sets the world spinning and then stands back to see what's going to happen. No, God is intimately involved in sustaining his creation. This is true of the whole universe. Psalm 75.3 says, When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. God says, I made it all and I hold it all together. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Similarly, Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is true of the universe, and it's true for Moses, and it's true for you and for me. Acts 17.28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. This is what God does. He made us. He sustains us. He holds us together. And God is inviting Moses to reflect on this truth. He says, Moses, you're thinking about the, the limits you have, the things you can't do. I need you to think about me for a minute. I need you to think about my power. I need you to think about the things I have done and the things I am doing. And he points him to the doctrine of creation. And we often think about the doctrine of creation as being a scientific uh, discussion, or perhaps something that has lots of philosophical implications, and it is both of those. But do we think about creation, that God is the maker? Do we think about that practically? Does it touch your life on a daily basis? Do you think about the fact that God made you, and he made you the way that he made you, intentionally, with sovereign wisdom and power? There's some serious practical implications. God made you for a purpose, to do his will. He made your mouth. He made your hands. He made your eyes. He made you to do his will. We are dependent upon him at each moment for life and breath and strength. And God is not going to call us to do something that he will not supply the grace to accomplish. The God who made you and me can enable us to do the things that he calls us to do. Moses is uncertain about his own ability, so God says, I want you to think about my ability. Who made your mouth? God did. But then he follows up this question with a promise. He says, I will be with your mouth, verse 12, and teach you what you shall speak. Now, this is a repetition of something God had already told him. You look back in verse 12 of this same chapter, in the initial commission, he said, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now God gets more specific with applying that promise. He says, I will be with your mouth. I'm not going to be just with you in a generic sense. It's not just that I'm going to be there and sort of around while you try to figure all this out and do it by yourself. He says, no, I will be with you in the sense that I will strengthen you. I will provide what it is that you lack. God will give him words. God will shape his thoughts. God will bring the vocabulary to mind. God will steer his responses. God will guide his every move as he steps out in faith to obey the things that God is commanding him to do. God will help him. Any deficiency that is in Moses will be swept up and lost in the all-sufficient power of God, the God who was with him and the God who promised to help him. 
What an encouragement to a man who is feeling the weight of his own inadequacies. Many people today struggle with feeling like they are not enough. Some of you feel that today. There's a wrong way to solve that tension. There's no shortage of voices in our culture that are out there crying out, saying, you are enough. You can be anything you set your mind to. If you just believe, if you just work hard, if you just dig deep, you can accomplish anything. The skies are the limit. You are enough. And they try to solve those feelings of insecurity and fear by telling you to look deeper within yourself as if that can make it better somehow. But the biblical solution for feelings of inadequacy, if you feel inadequate as a man, if you feel inadequate as a wife, if you feel inadequate as a student, if you feel inadequate as a parent, if you feel inadequate as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the solution starts with recognizing that, yes, you are inadequate. You aren't enough. You don't actually have everything that it takes to be who God calls you to be. And then you turn your eyes away from yourself. Stop looking at your gifts. Stop looking at your weaknesses. Stop looking at your skills. Stop looking at your needs. Stop looking at your successes and stop looking at your failures and start looking to God. He is all and he is sufficient. God is enough. And that means that our inadequacies and our deficiencies are not the deal breaker. Familiar words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 recall what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Perfect not in the sense that, that God's power is, is not uh, pure or holy or, or enough. Perfect here has a sense of complete, completeness, that God fully demonstrates his power in the midst of our weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Our weaknesses are not something that should, should cause us to complain and to protest that, God, we can't do the things you're asking us to do. No, our weaknesses are an opportunity to boast in the sufficiency and power of God. Do you boast in your weakness? Or do you use your weaknesses, your inadequacies, as an excuse to disobey the clear teaching of God? Are you so ashamed of your deficiencies that you shrink back and hide from anything that might expose you for not being enough? Too often we only say yes to the things we can do without God. And that shows that we're only looking at ourselves and not to the God who is with us who promises to strengthen us, the God whose grace is sufficient. Friends, God's power and sufficiency must be our confidence. We should be a confident people, a bold people, a courageous people, not because we look to ourselves, but because we look to God. Uh, hear me loud and clear. I'm not just trying to say this morning that you can do anything you set your mind to. No, that's the self-help gospel of the world, and it's empty. It's powerless. No, specifically, God empowers his people. And he doesn't empower you to do all the things you want to do. I wanted to be a professional baseball player at one point. God's power was not shown to be perfect in my weakness. 
I can't throw 95 miles an hour. But that was my dream and not God's. God empowers us specifically to do his will. Maybe that's the reason some of you haven't experienced God's power is because you've been pursuing your kingdom and not Christ's. But as we give ourselves to God's word and his will, to obeying his commands, then he will supply power, power to obey. God gives grace for service and sanctification. So God has reminded Moses of his power and his presence. He says, I made you and I will be with you. But Moses is still not convinced. Notice this final objection. Verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses has been uncertain about the outcome. He's been uncertain about his own abilities. But now he reveals the root issue. It's uncertainty about God. Whether or not God had really made the right choice. And whether or not God's will was something that should be done. He's very simply unwilling to obey. It's ironic here, Moses addresses God here. If you look in the text, addresses him as Lord. But this is the, the lower case, O-R-D, Lord. So this is not Yahweh. This is a, the title, Master. He's calling God Master. He's saying, I know that you are in charge. I know that you are sovereign. I know that you're the Master and I'm the servant. I know that you have all the authority but I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. I think that anyone other than me would be a better choice. And so Moses' uncertainty that we've seen throughout this chapter is now revealed to be what it really is. His uncertainty is actually unwillingness. It's unwillingness. And God is angry. Verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Why? Why is God angry, and why is he angry now, not earlier and not later? Well, think about it. Moses' first objection was doubting the people of Israel. I don't think they're going to listen. His second objection was doubting himself. I don't think I have the right abilities to do this. But this third and final objection is doubting God, suggesting that God made a mistake and resisting his will with a polite but still a definite no. Please send someone else. Moses simply doesn't want to do what God is asking him to do. This is the Jonah tactic. And this is why God responds with anger. He is angry. Because Moses is in no place to tell God no. And God has given him everything he needs. There's no reason why at this point Moses should be resisting his will. So you might expect at this point that the fire of the burning bush would blaze up more fiercely and consume this rebellious shepherd. We might expect that the very next words would tell us about how the holiness of God that has purified even the dirt that Moses stand, is standing on would now consume him and turn him to ashes. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. God is angry, yes, but he shows remarkable patience, patience with this man. And this patience is seen in that God makes a gracious provision for him. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he says, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. 
and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. God makes a provision for Moses, his brother Aaron. What this means is that Moses will not have to bear this burden alone. Being alone, feeling the full responsibility for a weighty burden, is one of the most difficult things that many people have to deal with. And Moses saw that, said, I don't want to bear this burden. And God is angry because of his unwillingness, but he's also patient and gracious. And he says, I'm sending your brother to help you. I'm sending Aaron to help you. And God would be with both of them. Moses would be the spokesman for God, and Aaron would be the spokesman for Moses. That's when it says, when, when God says, you shall be as God to him. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you what to say. You're going to tell Aaron what to say, and I'll be with both of you, and you will both together go and accomplish my plan. And what's amazing here is that this is not plan B. This is not God settling for second best because Aaron was already on the way. You know what that shows us? God had already anticipated Moses' need. And even if he hadn't asked, God was already sending his brother who was going to be glad to see him, who was going to receive Moses' word, and who was going to help him and be in it with him. We see later on as the nation of Israel is sort of put into its shape and structure that Aaron was going to be the high priest. He had a crucial role to play for this new nation. Aaron was not some afterthought. This was part of God's essential plan from the beginning. This concession that God makes in telling Moses, Aaron will help you. It's meant to magnify Moses' weakness and his unbelief. The presence of Aaron all along would remind him, I'm not the man who could do this by myself. But it's also meant to magnify God's wisdom and God's grace. Listen, God knows what we need. He knows what we lack. And he already has in mind how he's going to meet those needs. We don't always know what God has planned. We don't always see how God's going to provide, but we know that he will. He always does. God tells Moses, I'm going to send your brother Aaron. He's already on the way. He is going to help you. Once again, even in the face of this objection, we see that it's the power and presence of God that's supposed to be the foundation for Moses' faith. I will be with you, and I will be with Aaron. I will give you the words to say. And we see that God gives Moses a perpetual reminder that he was going to be with him and that his power would be the key, and that's the staff. He says in verse 17, Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This staff that Moses would take with him from this mountain, this personal identification symbol, this tool of protection, this weapon that Moses had would be empowered by God. It would turn into a snake and back again. It would be symbolic of God's promise, symbolic of his power, symbolic of his presence with Moses. Every time he saw it, every time he grabbed it, every time he leaned on it, it reminded him that he was to grab onto and to lean on the power of God. With this staff, Moses would perform signs in Egypt. He would stretch it out over oceans and armies. He would bring water out of the rock. And at every point, this staff would be the physical and visible reminder that God was with him. And it was God's power that was going to bring all these things to pass. And that was the solution 
from Moses' objections, his uncertainties, his doubts, is to know the power and the presence of God. As we think about these objections that Moses makes, they really all boil down to one thing, don't they? It's really all unbelief. It's all unbelief. At every point, what Moses needed, and listen, what you and I need today, is simply to look to God and believe that he is who he says he is, and to believe that he will do the things that he has said he will do. Therefore, because of God's power and his promise, we simply must trust and obey. So let me ask you today, what is it that God is calling you to do? Not just in a subjective sense, I'm talking about the clearly revealed commands of Scripture. Maybe the inconvenient parts that you don't like to read because it reminds you of the things that you're not doing, that God calls you to do. Let me ask, what is holding you back? What is keeping you from doing what God has called you to do? Christian, God has called you to share the gospel with unbelievers. But some of you say, but they won't listen. Does it sound familiar? Or how about this, I don't know what to say, and I'm not good at sharing the gospel. I think someone else would do better. Someone else would be the right person to share with them. I don't think I'm the right one for the job. Or perhaps, if you're honest, I don't want to. Men who are in the room, God calls you to lead your wife. And some of you protest, you say, but she won't listen. And I don't know what to say. I don't know how to lead my family. And if you're honest, some of you would just say, I don't want to. I have too many things going on at work. And I'd rather fish or play golf or be in my shop. Parents, God calls you to train your children, to discipline them, to teach them Christ. But some of you complain and say, but my kids don't listen. And I don't really know what to say. Or I don't think that God's pattern for biblical discipline and correction, I don't think that really works. Some of you say it's too hard. I tried that and I gave up. And some of you will simply admit, I don't want to. Church member, God calls you to serve and to use your gifts and to be involved. But some of you think someone else would be better equipped and you don't think you're very gifted. Friends, we do the same things that Moses did. It's easy for us to judge Moses and say, man, what an idiot. God made it so clear. I mean, the bush is burning and not consumed. He's literally talking with God. The staff turns into a snake and back again. The leprosy thing, what more does he need? We need to ask ourselves that question. What more do we need before we will simply do the things that God has asked us to do? Because we believe that he's with us and we believe his power is sufficient. God calls us today to go and to speak and to act And he promises to be with us. He promises to supply us with the power that we need. And when you say, I can't, or when you say, that won't work, what God hears is this, I won't. I won't because I don't trust you, God. I don't believe your promise and I don't think you'll be with me. And I don't think your plan is as good as my plan. I believe that my weakness is more significant than your power, God. And I believe these obstacles in the world are are simply insurmountable. 
if I can be direct with you this morning, if you know God's commands and you know his promises, but you still refuse, even if it's out of some uncertainty or fear or something that you like to even call humility, if you know God's command, you know his promises, and you still refused, then God is not pleased. And just as he was angry with Moses, he is angry with you. To knowingly refuse to obey the clear command of God is disobedience, it is sin, it is rebellion. And if you refuse to obey because you're afraid or you're pessimistic or you're uncertain, that's nothing less than unbelief. And that unbelief, in the face of all that God has revealed, in the face of the power that he's displayed, that unbelief angers God. And that unbelief is serious because it is of the same substance as that which leads men and women to hell. There are some who reject Christ. They hear his call to repent of sin and believe in the gospel, but they say, I don't think that'll work. I don't think that's for me, and I don't want to. And when you and I refuse to obey God, we're showing that there's trace elements of that same damning unbelief in our own hearts. If that describes you today, you need to humble yourself before God and ask for his mercy. Confess your unbelief and your sin and your lack of obedience. But there's good news is that the God who is angry with sin is also patient with us, just as he was patient with Moses. He did not consume him with fire there on the side of the mountain. He provided grace. He provided what Moses needed. God does the same with us. And you might ask why. I find myself asking that question this week. As I'm reading this text, I say, God, why didn't you just smoke this guy right there? Because God will do that in other places in Scripture. Why is it that when, when Pharaoh refuses God's command, Pharaoh gets judged and punished? And why is it that Moses gets grace and Moses gets the patience and mercy of God? Why is that? Here's the key. There's a covenant relationship that God has with his people. Moses was of the children of Israel and God had promises to keep. And here's how that connects to us. If you belong to Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, if you've humbled yourself and repented of your sin and trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross, then you belong to God. And he has promises that he has made, promises that have bearing on you and your soul and your life. And he will not condemn you. He may discipline you, but he will not cast you into outer darkness. He won't. He has promised, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's promised, the good work I started in you, I'm going to complete it. He's promised to sanctify you, to make you more and more like Jesus. So if you belong to Christ today and you recognize your sin and you, you feel the displeasure of God, let me comfort you and encourage you and call you to remember the promises of the gospel. That this God is also gracious and patient and merciful and he will forgive you and he will grow you. Just come to him. Come to him. God's kindness and his patience is not meant to lower our concern for our sin. It's meant to lead us to repentance. God allowed Moses to see his power on display on the mountain to strengthen Moses' faith, and he has shown his power to us as well, hasn't he? He has raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, and that miracle, the ultimate sign and wonder, is meant to create and sustain and fuel our faith. 
It's meant to blow all of our doubts and uncertainties and fears out of the water. I want to remind you this morning of the God that we worship. Moses may have taken that snake by the tail, but Jesus Christ defeated death itself. He's holding the keys. He won. This is the sign that the apostles preached in the book of Acts, that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And this is the basis for our faith today. It's the argument for our faith today. It is the proof that God has acted in power to save his people. To look to God, look to his power, believe, and be confident, be courageous. Step out in faith to obey the things that God is asking you to do. Here's the bottom line. I can't put it any better than Alec Mottier. He says, if the Lord is truly sovereign over all things, then the only reasonable response is to trust him. It is his omnipotence that matters, not our incompetence. That is good news. That's encouragement for our faith today. God is patient to bear with our weaknesses. He is patient and faithful to strengthen our brittle faith. He provides, he helps, he is merciful. And although we may not always know how things are going to turn out, exactly how God is going to accomplish his will, we know that his will is going to be done. We know that God will provide, and stories like this are meant to show us that he will. And it's meant to teach us, to show us that like Moses, we're simply called to trust God and to obey him. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, it's convicting. Convicting to be reminded of how often we focus on ourselves, our own inadequacies, our fears, and we put way too much stock in either our abilities or our lack of them. God, humble us today and get our eyes off of self. Help us to look to you. And I pray, Lord, that we would lay aside our dreams, our building of our kingdom, our purposes, our plans, and that we would be submitted fully and wholly to you. Lord, use us, we pray, to bring your name great glory. I pray that the men of this church would lead. Pray that those who know you in this room today would be faithful to proclaim the good news of Christ to the lost. Pray that parents would raise their children, that husbands and wives would relate to each other in a way that honors you in the way that scripture has laid out. Pray that those in this church body would be faithful to serve. Lord, make us a joyfully obedient people, obedient because we're confident that this is the path to blessing and that you will supply all that we need. We thank you, God, for your gracious initiative that you come to us, you call us, you give yourself to us, and then you help us to do the things that you call us to do. Lord, that is your goodness on display. So, Lord, make us into faithful worshipers and servants of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.